This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a Dying Patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old, PhD, scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. 
It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous, and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body. Only eight hours after we told her that she had this incurable illness, and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her, and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind, and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why Without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner, and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, and her nieces, whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love talking about everything here on this show, 
and telling stories about everything. And every once in a while, we love bringing you a really good commencement address. And a fan of this show named Chris Wright had the opportunity to actually give one of these addresses. Chris is an energy entrepreneur. He gave a speech at the University of Colorado at Denver and their global energy management program. And we found his speech so powerful that we asked him to record it for us. Here's Chris. The story of energy is quite simple. It is the story of freedom. Freedom from backbreaking toil. What does a human spirit freed from toil create? Our world, the modern world. It is an honor to be here today with you, the very soon to be graduates, when other aspects of your life were screaming for your time and energy, you juggled it all and finished your degree. You all decided that the trade-offs required would be worth it for you. But the additional factor that you may not have considered as much is that not only will you be better off, but humanity will be better off. The plight of humanity has always and everywhere been intimately tied with the availability and cost of energy. Before I say more about the ties between humanity and energy, I will say a few words about three scientists. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, and James Clerk Maxwell, in my opinion, the three greatest scientists of all time. They all had towering intellects, but the world has been blessed with many towering intellects. What sets Newton, Einstein, and Maxwell apart is that they chose to focus their efforts on critical problems. Problems that, if solved, would profoundly impact human understanding of the physical world. In the late 1600s, Newton took scientific discovery to a whole new level. Newton's laws of motion explained why an apple falls from a tree, why water flows downhill, why the planets orbit around the sun, why the oceans have tides. To explain these phenomena, he had to invent a new mathematical tool, calculus. Many students, including my daughter, are not too happy about that invention. Nonetheless, calculus is an essential tool of modern science, engineering, economics, and business. Newton's insights explain water wheels, windmills, dams, and steam engines, among countless others. James Clerk Maxwell's most important contribution was developing a set of four equations published in 1865 now called Maxwell's Equations. They describe electromagnetic fields. Think light, electricity, electric power, generation, the internet, cell phones, GPS, etc. Can you imagine a world without these things? 40 years later, in 1905, Albert Einstein had a big year. In that single year, he published four papers that each represented a huge step in human understanding. One paper explained the photoelectric effect, the basis of solar power. Another, E equals MC squared, formed the basis of nuclear power. Another, on the atomic theory of matter, and the fourth was that relativity thing. Quite a year for a 26-year-old inspector at the Zurich Patent Office. It is no coincidence 
that all three of these scientists worked in the field of energy. If you impact energy, you impact human lives. You have all chosen to impact energy. Less than 200 years ago, in our country, life expectancy was only about 40 years. Globally, life expectancy was about 35 years. 2,000 years ago, global life expectancy is thought to have been a little more than 30 years. Only a few years at most were added to the average human lifespan over many millennia. But somehow, we have added an additional four decades to human life expectancy over the last two centuries. Why? How? Of course, there are many reasons, and public health advancements were likely the most critical proximate cause. But why did those advancements only occur so recently? What was the ultimate cause? I believe that there were two major ultimate causes. First and foremost, the dramatic expansion of individual liberty and property rights in the first half of the 19th century. Expanded individual liberty and property rights replaced mercantilism, a system where kings, queens, governments tightly controlled the granting of corporate charters to only the wealthy, connected, and favored. Mercantilism was replaced with a system where citizens could more freely and equally engage in commerce. This newfound freedom unleashed human enterprise, innovation, and creativity like never before. Most famously in the rapid spread of the steam engine, pioneered in the previous century by Thomas Newcomen, James Watt, to power water pumps, textile machinery, and trains. For the first time in human history, the standard of living of the average person began to consistently grow and by now has increased in the developed world by roughly 25-fold since 1840, 10-fold globally. Humans not only doubled their life expectancy, they also became dramatically wealthier and freer. We are all quite lucky to be living today and not 200 years ago. For economic freedom and human liberty to bear fruit, one other factor had to be present. Energy, and lots of it. Before these dramatic changes in property rights and human liberty unleashed economic growth, nearly all human energy was supplied by biomass. This meant the burning of trees, sticks, grass, and dung a rather limited energy source that could never power the Industrial Revolution. Something much vaster, denser, and more uniform would be needed to power machines. Coal was the first to fit the bill, and the rest is history. Sadly, biomass remains the primary source of energy today for over a billion humans who still lack access to electricity, and nearly another billion who have only unreliable electricity. Burning biomass not only provides warmth, but it is critical for cooking food. Unfortunately, pollution from indoor burning of wood, grass, and dung kills roughly three million people per year. Together with hunger, lack of access to clean drinking water, and malaria, these four killers are responsible for 15 million deaths per year 
bringing affordable energy to the world's poor will be essential to eradicating these four scourges. Advancements in energy have made the modern world possible. From planes, trains, and automobiles, to computers, the internet, modern medicine, and wireless communication. Abundant, cheap energy powered air conditioning, which enabled cities to develop in the tropics. Energy allowed modern medicine to spread across the globe. And perhaps most relevant to this room, energy enabled widespread higher education like University of Colorado's Global Energy Management Program. The British intellectual and author, Matt Ridley, gives a very fitting example of how advancements in energy and technology have revolutionized something fundamental to education, the reading light. In 1800, it took the average person six hours of labor to earn one hour of reading light from a tallow candle. How rare bedtime stories must have been back then. By 1880, two decades after the first oil well was drilled in Titusville, Pennsylvania, kerosene lamps lowered this by 24-fold to only 15 minutes of labor to earn one hour of reading light. However, that was still a rather significant investment for the average worker. Today, it requires the average worker only a small fraction of a second of labor to earn an hour of reading light. The excuse that I couldn't finish my assignment because I ran out of reading light simply no longer works. And what great storytelling. And that's why we love doing this show, folks, bringing voices like this, stories like this that don't get taught in school. Heck, they don't get taught anywhere. And they are the truth. You're nodding in your cargo. My goodness, that's right. That makes sense. When we come back, more of this commencement speech, Chris Wright's story about energy, his own story, really, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we return to energy entrepreneur Chris Wright and his remarkable commencement address, a story in the end about energy. Coal was the first major source of energy beyond biomass. It powered the spread of the Industrial Revolution, and by the middle of the 19th century, it became a meaningful contributor to total world energy consumption. Oil became significant 50 years later as automobiles and the internal combustion engine burst on the scene. Before long, oil enabled high-speed mass transportation to spread across the globe. Natural gas didn't become a major source of energy until after World War II, as it required a large pipeline network to transport it. These three hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and gas, 
have supplied over 80% of the U.S. and world energy during my lifetime. Nuclear, hydro, and biomass have supplied almost all of the rest. Today, there is a resurgence of interest in solar, wind, and geothermal, which combined provide about 2% of world energy. My choice of college was impacted by my desire to work on harnessing fusion energy, the energy source of the sun and all the stars. In graduate school, I worked on solar energy and afterwards I worked on geothermal energy for a few years. There are many potential sources of future energy. However, improving our current energy portfolio is much harder than most appreciate. The biggest energy transformation during my career has not been from a new energy source, but instead within the realm of hydrocarbons. American entrepreneurship, innovation, and determination launched the American shale revolution that has radically altered the American and world energy landscapes over the past 10 years. The shale revolution was simply a different way to execute hydraulic fracturing in older technology and advancements in drilling technologies to tap oil and gas from the source rocks where oil and gas was originally created. This recent revolution has been transformative. Natural gas now heats over half of U.S. homes and provides nearly 40% of our electricity. Two years ago, it surpassed coal as our largest source of electricity. It is the dominant fuel powering factories and a major feedstock for petrochemicals and nitrogen fertilizer. A surge in the supply of American natural gas not only dramatically lowered energy costs for U.S. consumers, but it is also launching a renaissance in U.S. manufacturing due to our tremendous energy cost advantage over all other industrial countries. The U.S. has now become a net exporter of natural gas. In fact, the third largest exporter of natural gas in the world. Quite a reversal of fortune, as only a decade ago, we were building multi-billion dollar terminals to import natural gas into the United States. Now these terminals export natural gas. The shale revolution's impact on oil markets has been even more profound. U.S. dependence on oil imports dropped from 60% 12 years ago to 15% and falling today. The more than doubling in U.S. oil production over the last eight years has made the United States the largest producer of liquid fuels, oil plus natural gas liquids, and has supplied roughly 80% of the growth in demand for oil globally over the last five years. The result of a surge in supply is inevitably a price drop, and this has been no exception. Over the last three years, oil prices have averaged about $50 a barrel versus $90 a barrel in the five years before that. Since the U.S. consumes over 6 billion barrels of oil per year, that equates to a quarter of a trillion dollar savings to U.S. consumers every year. Worldwide, the result has been a trillion dollar annual wealth transfer from oil producers to oil consumers each year, each of the last three years. 
how can I celebrate the consumer savings when I'm an oil producer? Good question. In a market economy, the primary beneficiaries of innovation are always consumers. I applaud the improved standard of living that comes with cheaper energy, particularly for lower income folks. We producers have to compete hard to share some small part of the gains from technology. We are indeed fighting hard these days. Likely the prices of oil and gas have overshot on the downside during the downturn. But a new equilibrium appears to have been arrived with oil prices still far lower than they were in the five years before the energy downturn. The energy business has always been cyclical and always will be. It is exciting and it is meaningful, but we are forced to live with cyclicality. Enough on energy markets. Today, fossil fuels are viewed by some as the enemy of the environment. But is that true? The United Kingdom is quite wet and lush. It is, after all, the land of Robin Hood Sherwood Forest. Yet over 85% of the land is barren of tree cover. Why? Because coal arrived too late to save the United Kingdom forests. But it did arrive in time to save the forests of continental Europe and together with oil and gas, the forests of the United States. Fortunately, oil drilling, which began in Pennsylvania in 1859, arrived just in time to save the whale population, which was being rapidly decimated to supply the cleaner burning whale oil that was displacing candles and coal for indoor lighting. Nearly a thousand whaling ships were trawling all four oceans of the world because of the impact this clean lighting fuel had. Kerosene saved the remaining whales and the whale population has surged in the last 150 years. I'm reminded of those prophetic words nearly 200 years ago from the eminent English historian, Thomas Babington Macaulay, who said, we cannot absolutely prove that those are in error who say that society has reached a turning point, that we have seen our best days, but so said all who came before us and with just as much apparent reason. On what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us. Of course, we have many challenges today with energy and society as a whole, and we are sure to have new challenges tomorrow. But the future sure looks bright to me, particularly as I look out at this group of energetic leaders. Go forth, meet these challenges. Congratulations and best of luck to you all. And what great storytelling. And again, that was a commencement speech, but it was a story, folks. And make no mistake about it, it was a story about modern life, the story of energy. And that was Chris Wright at the University of Colorado's Denver campus and the Global Energy Management Program. There are so many things our people of this great country do for a living. And we love to talk about their work because it's important. And the people who work in the energy field, my goodness, the work they do matters. It powers the nation, empowers what we do, where we drive, how we transport our loved ones, and so much more. And so again, thanks to Chris Wright, and this is the storytelling you will not get at college or high school or anywhere else, but it's the kind of storytelling we do here on this show. Chris Wright's story, the story of energy and the modern world, here 
on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature. If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are you've heard Beyonce's get out of your seat and dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's Single Ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King. A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. Gospel has that dun 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 right? It's influenced by Boogie Woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. This is what caused people in churches to to catch the spirit and to go wild. But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard. Ooh, my soul. We're gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night, and I just got paid. Music historian Todd Boyd. A guy like Little Richard 
as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint. Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor. Richard said, I want to bring you to the train station. I want you to hear something. So that listen to the train. The train's going off. He said, I wife when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I say, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer. A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good balanced sounding records, all America. Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats, as soon as you heard the very first notes, you knew exactly what this was. It came out sounding like God. Robinson. On the very first day of Motown, Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them. And he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not going to only make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music with some great beats and some great stories. And we're going to always do quality music. We would go places in the South, taking our, our Motortown reviews down there, you know. There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking, intermingling, holding hands. His little black boy holding a little white girl's hand or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be. Here's producer Greg Fillingaines. The basic elements or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic. I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. Yeah. 
James Brown and the JBs in the mid 60s changed the sound of, of what dance music is. If you listen to, to um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band, it's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is. Come on! Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing. It was funkier than, than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk. That, to me, is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect. He influenced Sly, he influenced Stevie, he influenced Prince, he influenced dance music. Indeed he did. Now, let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making songwriting production team for single ladies, Terrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City! started this beat, just a drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard. And I just sat in the back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, I would say what? I'm thinking, I'm quiet. He's not I'm giving, giving me no, no love. He's yeah. not, he's not, we're not in it nothing. together. He's just. I'm giving him nothing. I'm Jedi. Trick stopped the beat. And I look at him, I was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what, what do you mean? I was going to start another beat. I was like, yeah, you just go and sit in it. Sit like, in the like, right? He's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. <laughs> The anatomy is there. The heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the, the, the I just have to put the legs on. She came by to just kind of poke her head in and kind mm -hmm. of hear what it was, and she was like, oh. And she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out, like there was no nothing. It was like, yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the yeah. next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth. Singing, and we were like, "Yeah, this is this is this is this is happening." He's thinking about how to connect the dots lyrically. I'm thinking about B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about they like to me. It's a church beat, so I just started with the. It's like that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I could see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the, and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And there you have it, who would have thunk it? from the gospel pews of the American South. 
throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and, of course, the producers. And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. The story of a song, Single Ladies, put a ring on it here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. The Cremation of Sam McGee is one of the most famous poems by Robert W. Service. It was published in 1907 in Songs of a Sourdough. A sourdough, in this sense, is a resident of the Yukon. It's about the cremation of a prospector who freezes to death, told by the man who cremates him. Here now is the cremation of Sam McGee, Told by the great Johnny Cash. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lake LeBarge that I cremated Sam McGee. Now Sam McGee was from Tennessee, where the cotton blooms and blows. Why he left his home in the south to roam round the pole, God only knows. He was always cold, but the land of gold seemed to hold him like a spell. Though he'd often say in his homely way, I'd sooner live in hell. On a Christmas day, we were mushing our way over the Dawson Trail. And you talk of your cold, but through the parka's fold it stabbed like a driven nail. If our eyes we'd close and the lashes froze Till sometimes we couldn't see It wasn't much fun but the only one to whimper was Sam McGee And that very night as we lay packed tight in our robes beneath the snow And the dogs were fed and the stars overhead were dancing heel and toe He turned to me and Cap says he I'll cash in this trip I guess and if I do, I'm asking that you won't refuse my last request. Well, he seemed so low that I couldn't say no. Then he says with a sort of a moan, It's the cursed cold, and it's got right hold till I'm chill clean through to the bone. Yet it ain't being dead, it's my awful dread of the icy grave that pains. So I want you to swear that foul or fair, You'll cremate my last remains. Well, a pal's last need is a thing to heed, so I swore I would not fail. And we started on at the break of dawn, but God, he looked ghastly pale. And he crouched on the sleigh, and he raved all day of his home in Tennessee. And before nightfall, a corpse was all that was left of Sam McGee. With a corpse half hid that I couldn't get rid, I hurried horror-driven. There wasn't a breath in that land of death, and because of a promise given, it was lashed to the sleigh, and it seemed to say, You may tax your brawn and brains, but you promise true, and it's up to you 
to cremate my last remains. Now a promise made is a debt unpaid, and the trail has its own stern code. In the days to come, though my lips were numb, in my heart how I cursed that load. In the long, long night by the lone firelight, while the huskies round in a ring, howled out their woes to the homeless snows. Oh, God, how I loathed that thing. And every day that quiet clay seemed to heavy and heavier grow, and on I went though the dogs were spent and the grub was getting low, and the trail was bad, and I felt half mad, but I swore I'd not give in, and I'd often sing to that hateful thing, and it hearkened with a grin. Till I came to the marge of Lakely Barge, and a derelict there lay. It was jammed in the ice, but I saw in a thrice it was called the Alice May. And I looked at it, and I thought a bit, and I looked at my frozen chum. Then here, said I with a sudden cry, is my crematorium. Some planks I tore from the cabin floor, and I lit the boiler fire. Some coal I found that was lying round, and I heaped the fuel higher. Well, the flames just soared and the furnace roared, such a blaze you never did see. And I burrowed a hole in the glowing coal and I stuffed in Sam McGee. Then I made a hike, for I didn't like to hear him sizzle so. And the heavens scowled and the huskies howled and the wind began to blow. It was icy cold, but the hot sweat rolled down my cheeks and I don't know why. And the greasy smoke in an inky cloak went streaking down the sky. I do not know how long in the snow I wrestled with grisly fear, but the stars came out and they danced about before I ventured near. I was sick with dread, but I bravely said, I'll just take a peek inside. I guess he's cooked and it's time I looked. Then the door I opened wide. And there sat Sam, looking cool and calm in the heart of the furnace roar. And he wore a smile you could see a mile, and he said, please close that door. It's fine in here, but I greatly fear you'll let in the cold and storm. And since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, this is the first time I've been warm. There are strange things done in the midnight sun by the men that toil for gold. The Arctic trails have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. The northern lights have seen queer sights, but the queerest they ever did see was that night on the marge of Lakely Barge that I cremated Sam McGee. And what a piece of storytelling, and that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We get out of the way, we find some really great material, and we share it with you. And by the way, as Johnny Cash was telling that story, I couldn't get the thought of the Lonesome Dove out of my head and that great burial scene where, of course, Woodrow has to bury Gus. He has to take him all the way back all the way back across the country by wagon because he made a promise to his buddy. By the way, if you remember the line, he says, I guess this will teach me to be more careful about what I promise in the future. But a promise then was a promise, and hopefully you know people in your life now today where a promise is a promise. The cremation of Sam McGee, what storytelling, and that's the great Johnny Cash. If you've got an old story like this from American literature, from the American canon, Send us your suggestions. We'll put them up on the air and send them right back at you. American literature at its finest. American performance art at its finest. And American storytelling at its finest here 
on Our American Stories. American stories, and we tell stories of every kind here, and we love hitting the road and visiting cities across America. We're going to do reports from cities, big and small, regularly here. And by the way, if you got a story about your city and your town, well, drop us a note at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll get there. If the story's interesting enough, and my goodness, I'm sure that you got an interesting story about almost every place you live in this great country. Well, today is the story of a city called New Orleans, and it has over 10 million visitors per year with a local population hovering around 400,000. Our producer, Jesse Edwards, hit the streets. What can be said about a city that people can't stop talking about? The birthplace of jazz. Louis Armstrong Territory, Satchmo. I was born, uh, you know, 1900. And uh, in James Alley, they call it. That's the uh, back of town. That's the, the rear of New Orleans. People of every race, color, religion, gender, age, language, and class call it home. Truly, the great American melting pot. Every kind of food, every kind of booze. Music pours into the air from every street corner. The sweet morning breeze collides with the sweltering humidity of the mid-morning sun, followed by a long, slow burn that stays lit well into the early morning hours and beyond sunrise again. The Big Easy, the Crescent City, the house of the rising sun. We're staying at the Maison du Puy Hotel in the French Quarter, just two blocks from Bourbon Street. With its wide-open courtyard and pool, full bar and cafe, old-world charm comes with rooms that start around 130 bucks a night. With a little imagination, it's very easy to convince yourself that you're somewhere in Europe. If you're into that sort of thing. There's a vintage 1969 Montgomery G&P elevator in the lobby here for no extra charge. You don't want to get stuck in this aging beauty, though. About half the size of a normal elevator, you feel the box knocking around the walls as it takes you to your floor. And it's slower than one might think of a modern elevator. Heavy with marble tile and worn brass. A long weekend here won't break the bank. And there's always something to look at. Galatoise dates back to 1905 with a business casual dress code for lunch, no shorts or t-shirts allowed. Most of the waiters are longtime employees who are local to South Louisiana. My name is John Fontenot. I'm from the Bayou. I've been here at Galatoire since 1967. 
and I left a couple of times to go back to college to try to finish college. But I'm still here because I like people. And whether they like me or not, I still like them, you know? I tell them a few jokes here and there, things like that. But I, I finished school, but I still rather be a waiter because I, I like to talk to people, you know? I tried to talk to myself, but it don't work. Uh, you gotta, and I spoke French before English, born and raised here, so that's why I got an accent. I try, you know, sometimes you get tired of talking, the accent comes worse, it gets worse. John's been working here as a waiter for over 50 years, and you can hear how much he enjoys it in his voice. Galatoire is, uh, to describe Galatoire, it's like an oasis. I call it an oasis. They got to come here, they got to eat, especially Friday. They come every day, but Friday's like they, they, they fight to get in here. And I don't know, you know, other than that, it's, they all meet each other. It's a local restaurant. So they all meet each other and they all have a good time. It's like, uh, like going to kind of like, um, like going to church, you meet all your friends. And it's, uh, <laughs> I guess that's about the best description I, I got. And they, they don't drink too much. They drink a little bit, they eat good. The food is great. And uh, it's always consistent. We have fresh, if we don't have it, it's because it's not fresh. Like social crab, still playing the piano. That's the only time we eat it. We love crabbing on top and a little touch of menier, you know, things like that. What makes Galatois so good, it's not just the food, but it's the local people. Man, we got a lot of local people come here. If it wouldn't be for local people, we'd have to close up. The pe local people love us. And oh, now we like the tourists too and all that, but the local people like, I very seldom wait on tourists. I, yeah. I mostly, uh, local people I wait on. Some of them I don't recognize because they, they grow up so quick, but they know me, you know, because I wait on their dad, their grandpa, grandma. Kind of makes you feel good. I feel like I'm related to them, you know? It's hard to describe that, but once you get a relation with them, they come in, I know what, just about what they're gonna eat. Now that's pretty good. Will you remember what they're gonna eat? Like shrimp remoulade or crab meat maison, or better yet, half and half, a little shrimp and a little crab meat. You know, that kind of stuff appetizer. And I bring them a little bread. And then for the main course, red fish. I tell them all the time, red fish, lemon fish, drum, papano. That's our fish. Saute with crab meat. Papano, you usually grill it. Because papano is uh, a special fish. It's a little different from the others. Because the others are more mild fish. But uh, you got to remember these things when you, it's like wine. I try to remember the wine. And it's a little harder. But for the fish and all that, I remember all of that, you know. After working at Galatoire's for so long, John's seen a lot of waiters come and go over the years. Either you got it, or you ain't. The waiters at Galatoire's, they have to be pretty good to be a waiter at Galatoire, I think. I would think so, because the waiters at Galatoire's are kind of like, uh, you gotta you gotta be attentive to the customers. You just can't sell, give them a hamburger and say, well, we don't serve hamburger here, but I'm just saying, give them a hamburger, eat, that's it. No, no, over here you gotta keep keep track of them, keep that table kind of, you know, keep it as clean as you can as you go. Ice and water, they want wine, they might not want wine now. They'll, ten minutes, five minutes later after you walk, yeah, send them over here, I need a bottle of wine. You know, that kind of, you got to be attentive to them all the time. I like to explain it to them better yet. You know, like, crab meat au gratin is in the cream cheese sauce, you know, stuffed eggplant, crab meat shrimp baked, you know, kind of like, kind of, you just don't, I, I like what I do, it's my job, and I make it like, I'm glad you came. Because if you wouldn't come, I wouldn't be, I'd be out of work, you know? 
so I'm always thanking them for coming, you know, that kind of thing. And before I came here, they didn't have ice machine. We had to use the ice. We used to have 900 pounds of ice delivered to us every day. Louisiana is the only place in the United States, other than a small strip of our border with Canada, where French or French Creole is spoken as a first language. Six to ten percent of the population. They speak French here because in 1682, a French explorer claimed Louisiana for France. Eighty years later, France gave Louisiana to Spain. For 40 years, New Orleans was a Spanish city. It burned to the ground twice and was rebuilt before it was ever considered American. In 1803, France takes back possession and sells it to the United States just 20 days later in the Louisiana Purchase. Three years after the 19th century began, the Louisiana Delta, a large swampy wilderness abounding in game, was purchased by the United States from France. At first, the Americans sought only the Delta area to allow a free exit from the Mississippi Valley through the port of New Orleans. But the purchase was enlarged to include a vast fertile land reaching from the Gulf of Mexico to the Canadian border as far west as the Rockies, over a million square miles for the price of only $15 million, about four cents an acre. It was the foresight of men like the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, who saw in this great territory the future of America. And on the shores of these great lakes, inland commerce from the North Atlantic to the Gulf. Less than a decade later, in the War of 1812, the United States took on the greatest naval power in the world at the time, Great Britain, in a conflict that would have an immense impact on our young country's future. The final battle of that war was fought here, the Battle of New Orleans. Then Colonel Andrew Jackson led a coalition of pirates, free blacks, and Tennessee volunteers to defeat a British force outside the city. In 1814 we took a little trip, along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. Took a little bacon and we took a little beans Fought the bloody British in the town of New Orleans We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming Wasn't as many as it was a while ago We fired once more and they began to run it Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Well, we looked down the river and we seen the British come And it must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum Stepped so high and they began to sing We stood beside the cotton bales and didn't say a thing We fired our guns and the British kept a-coming But they wouldn't as many as it was a while ago Fired once more and they began to run it on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. When we return, the story of New Orleans continues on Our American Stories. They ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go. They run so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them. Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, we fired our cannon till the barrel melted down. Then we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round. Filled his head with cannonball and powdered his behind. And when we touched the powder off, the gator lost his mind. We fired our guns and the British kept a coming. Wasn't as many as it was a while ago. Fired once more and they began to run it down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they fired through the paper through the rabbit couldn't go. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the city of New Orleans in a 
Side note here, it's my favorite American city. My wife and I go there regularly. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, not very far drive away. Uh, moreover, we were married there. That's how much we love the city. Got married there and loved to go and eat there and listen to music there. Now let's return to Jesse and more of the story. The population of the city doubled in the 1830s with an influx of settlers. By 1840, New Orleans had become the wealthiest and third most populous city in the nation at 102,000. Early in the Civil War, New Orleans was captured by the Union without a battle in the city itself, and was spared the destruction suffered by many other cities in the South. There are a lot of drunk people here in New Orleans. Just be cool, man. There's one place in town that doesn't serve any drinks or food for that matter. It's called Preservation Hall. Not only are food and drinks prohibited, but there's no bathrooms anywhere. If you're planning on seeing the show after pregame drinks, be ready to hold it in for at least an hour, standing in line if you want good seats, and another hour for the show itself. Oh, and I forgot to mention, there's no air conditioning either. If you know how hot and humid it gets in New Orleans during the summer, prepare yourself. This place gets loud, and it gets hot, and it gets packed in tight. Shows are at 5, 6, 8, 9, and 10 p.m. General admission is cash only, $20, seven nights a week. Unless you want to pay extra for big shot seating that gives you the best spot in the house and allows you to skip the line for 35 to 50 bucks. This place was established in 1961 to preserve, perpetuate, and protect traditional New Orleans jazz. This small, intimate room feels like the main vessel from God himself to the south. The band starts playing. Operating as a music venue, a touring band, a record label, and a nonprofit organization, Preservation Hall continues their mission as a cornerstone of New Orleans music and culture. I'm Ben Jaffe, and I'm uh, the bass player, the upright bass, and the tuba player with the band. Ben Jaffe also runs this place. His parents were founding members. I, I look to, to the early jazz pioneers that are like responsible for this music, people like you know Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and... Freddie Kepper, these musicians that uh, were creating something new at that time, a part of the tradition that we're a part of and come, come out of, and the responsibility we have to keep that tradition alive and relevant and new while still having you know, a foot in the past and you know, kind of looking towards the, the future. Since its opening day in 1961, millions of people have walked through this hall, including presidents, prime ministers, movie stars, and rock idols. Paul Newman and Steve McQueen have filmed scenes at the hall. Tom Waits called it sacred, hallowed ground. Louis Armstrong himself said of Preservation Hall, that's where you'll find all the greats. We so often hear him sing. Let's listen to the master from New Orleans speak. 
I played in a symphony orchestra in 1925 for silent pictures. And we played everything you hear these big orchestras playing. Right there in, in the Vendum Theater in Chicago. And we changed programs twice a week with movies. And we play an overture. Then we go into the jazz, quite nicely, that's how I got in there. But still, in all look at the experience I had by being there, waiting for myself to come in with the jazz chorus or whatever it is. But we play an overture first, and there's the experience right there. William Tell was nothing after I was there two weeks. Understand? Because I was interested in my horn and everything went with it. And, uh, it wasn't much different, the divisions of the, the measures and all that that we did in the funeral marches, three, four time, four, four time, 12, eight time, the same. So everything's been done before, nothing new. But I listen to the best of music, which is just plain music. The worst thing, the public, and especially musicians, they ruin music. Musicians trying to play for them. So they can say, man, you out of this world. And they ain't even paid for to get in the damn concert at all. If you'd have gone and pleased them people that appreciate like wonderful world, that's just a tame tune to your hip, if you call a hip musician. And they ask them to play it, you know, you have the tone to play it. Still in all, if you don't blow your brains out, that's what ruined a lot of musicians through the years. And ruined music. Trying to please the other musician that even can't play nothing himself. You bet your life. I like lost my lip trying to please these cats standing there with their arms full. Mm -hmm. What? What can you play? There's 10 billion trumpet players. Name one that you think's a creator. And if you name one, I'll kiss your pocketbook. <laughs> Jazz and New Orleans go hand in hand. People love it down here. One infamous citizen of the city liked jazz oh, a little too much. He's known as the Axeman of New Orleans. As the killer's name implies, the victims were usually attacked with an axe. He killed six and injured 12, but the Axeman was never caught or identified. His crime spree stopped as mysteriously as it had started. On March 13th of 1919, a letter from the Axeman was published in newspapers saying that he would kill again, but would spare the occupants of any place where a jazz band was playing. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, of course, on Tuesday next... I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, so much the better for your people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people 
who do not jazz it up on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get my axe. That night, all of New Orleans' dance halls were filled to capacity with jazz parties at hundreds of houses around town. The horror then came to an abrupt end, and no one would ever learn the identity of the Axeman. The story of New Orleans continues when we return here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. If you ever get down to all this way, you might steer clear on St. Joseph's Day. The graveyard bones make a rattling sound. The dead get up and start walking around. believe me but I'll tell you it's true and you would too if it happens to you I spent the night on the graveyard there and what I saw gave me a terrible scare rattling bones rattling bones creeping around from behind the headstones is our American stories and we conclude with our adventure into the deep streets of New Orleans with our producer Jesse the last 48 hours in this town have been a whimsical blur mostly thanks to the frozen margaritas on every street corner and staying up to 4 a.m. listening to world-class jazz one of the more popular bars in the French Quarter is Pat O'Brien's during Prohibition, it was known as Mr. O'Brien's, and the password, Storm's Bruin, was required to gain entrance to the establishment. It began operation as a legal liquor joint in December of 1933, and it's where the cocktail known as the Hurricane was born. Charlie Bateman is VP of Operations at O'Brien's. Well, the Hurricane was created mainly because there was a shortage of liquor, you know, uh, and uh, for like every case of scotch you, you had to buy, you had to buy like five cases of rum. And not a lot of people drank rum back in those days. So long story short, they, they were stockpiling the rum. They had no idea what to do with it. So one day they, uh, uh, George Oster sat down with uh, Charlie Cantrell and they started playing around with a different drink. Uh, a liquor salesman had to bring in some what they call red passion fruit mix. So, and they created the, the strength, it was a red drink with red passion fruit mix. The next thing was, is you know, how do we going to promote it? So at first they put it in a small glass. That didn't work out too well. So they had these hurricane lamps that they used to put the, the candles in. And so they put the drink in there. It was a big, tall, red drink. And they, they gave it, they passed it out to a lot of locals that came in here. And it just snowballed from there. And whenever the service menus walk in, they all want to know what the drink was. And it's one of the biggest uh, souvenir items of New Orleans. So 
Over the years, we've sold millions and millions of those. While there's more to New Orleans than drinking, it'd be a shame not to introduce you to Chris McMillan. He's a famous New Orleans bartender and co-founder of the Museum of the American Cocktail. This line of work runs in his family. He's a fourth-generation bartender, and in 2016, he opened Revel in Midtown. Uh, I want to say just a couple of things about uh, the preparation of the drink before I get started. Uh, one is the uh, traditional silver cup. Uh, metal acts as a conductor. Glass acts as an insulator. So the cooling of a drink is the physics of heat transfer. When you have the metal, it conducts the heat in the spirit through the metal to the exterior of the glass and causes condensation and actually creates a frost on the exterior of the cup, making it colder uh, and therefore the drink more pleasant to more pleasant to drink. The second thing is the actual use of mint, and you'll see this with the mojito uh, also. Bartenders believe that by We've all seen that commercial of the uh, bartender in the room uh, muddling the men in the mojito with the, uh, the band playing and the, the party going on to the beat of the rhythm of his muddling. And bartenders believe that by showing you uh, their muddling technique, it shows their skill as a bartender. But uh, one of the things that you have to learn about men is that it's very delicate. And it doesn't require that you pulverize it. You can take one leaf and just barely rub it and release the beautiful fragrance and essence of the oil in the leaf. However, if you take an equal leaf and crush it and pulverize it, it will release bitter uh, flavors, uh, which you often see in the mojito. This is chlorophyll in the plant, and you release that vegetable matter, so you're not trying to crush the mint. Our bartender here then recites a routine of prose as he crafts our cocktail. It's called Ode to the Mint Julep, and it was written by Joshua Soul Smith. Then comes the zenith of man's pleasure. Then comes the julep, the mint julep. Who has not tasted one, has lived in vain. The honey of Hymenus brought no such solace to the soul. The nectar of the gods is tame beside it. It is the very dream of drinks, the vision of sweet quaffings. The bourbon and the mint are lovers in the same land they live and on the same food that they fostered. The mint dips its infant leaf into the same stream that makes the bourbon what it is. The corn grows the level lands through which the small streams meander. By the brookside, the mint grows. As little wavelets pass, they glide up to kiss the feet of the growing mint. It bends to salute them. Gracious and kind it is, living only for the sake of others. The crushing of it, only makes its sweetness more apparent. Like a woman's heart, it gives its sweetest aroma when bruised. Among the first to greet the spring, it comes. Beside the curling brook that makes music in the pastures, it lives and thrives. When the bluegrass begins to shoot its gentle sprays towards the sun, it comes, and its sweetest soul drinks at the crystal brook. It is virgin then, but soon it must be married to old bourbon. His great heart, his warmth of temperament, and that affinity which no one understands demand the wedding. How shall it be? Take from the cold spring some water pure as angels are, and mix it with sugar till it seems like oil. Then take a glass and crush your mint within it with a spoon. Crush it around the borders of the glass and leave no place untouched. Then throw the mint away. It is a sacrifice. Fill with cracked ice the glass, 
pour in the quantity of bourbon which you want. It trickles slowly through the ice. Let it have time to cool. Then pour your sugared water over. No spoon is needed. No stirring allowed. Then place sprigs of mint around the brim so that the one who drinks may find a taste and an odor at one draft. When it is made, sip it slowly. August suns are shining. The breath of the south wind is upon you. It's fragrant, cold, and sweet. It is seductive. No maiden's kiss is tender or more refreshing. No maiden's touch could be more passionate. Sip it and dream. You cannot dream amiss. Sip it and dream. It is a dream itself. No other land gives such sweet solace for your cares. No other liquor soothes you so in melancholy days. Sip it and say, there is no solace for the soul, no tonic for the body, like old bourbon whiskey. Needless to say, I had my fill of bourbon that night. But somehow, I managed to avoid the dreaded hangover. A walk in the early morning sunlight around Jackson Square is a great way to get some pictures of the local architecture without getting a bunch of tourists in the shot, and it's a great chance at some fresh air. It's actually the best time to walk the French Quarter, in my opinion. Bourbon Street is quiet, and the only other people out are going to work. Beware. Once you come here, part of you will never leave. As beautiful as she is haunting, and just as salty as she is sweet, this town has an undeniable magnetism that will draw you near forever. Some of it's the history, some the legend, the food, the drinks, that party atmosphere that doesn't quite sound like anywhere else. There's also an indiscernible quality about New Orleans that's perhaps best left to the poets. This is a love poem for New Orleans, written and performed by Nina Erickson. She's a floozy you fall in love with against your better judgment. She's fast and unfaithful, but you just don't care because she's so beautiful and so charming. And when you're in her arms, she talks you into doing things you'd never do anywhere else. You know she's not true and she doesn't love you, but her voice is jazz. And her blood is zydeco, and when she sings the blues, you give in and hand over to her anything she asks. Her heart's in the quarter, though she gives no quarter herself. She's ruthless, and she'll take you for everything you're worth. In fact, you think nothing of it. When she tells you to give her $10 for that $3 drink she just served you in a plastic cup, so you can take it with you out into her streets where you trip over the cobblestones as you make your way back to the haunted room you've rented for the week. It must be the voodoo that leaves you so spellbound that you stand transfixed in the square in front of the cathedral and under the stony gaze of Jackson, wishing you could stay in her wicked arms just a few more nights. No, she's no good for you. But she stole your heart while she emptied your pockets. So you make up your mind, it's no big deal. You'll let the Big Easy keep your money and your good sense and call it a fair trade. Because while your wallet is empty and your pride is laid low, your soul is as full as a steaming cup of coffee, served up at 4 a.m. at the Café du Monde, 
where you sit trying to sober up just enough to remember how to find your way back to that rented room with its ghost of a beautiful dark-skinned girl that gave you such a fright your first few nights in town until you got used to her leaning over your bed to tuck you in tight each time you laid down. For our American Stories in New Orleans, I'm Jesse Edwards.